Welcome to the Paramedia Podcast with Luca the Hi, everyone, um, and welcome to the Mario Media Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Luca the And on this episode, we're actually joined by Neha Srivastava, who is the founder of Shaktitva, um, which is a, a female, Hindu female magazine. I don't want to say feminist because that has a lot of connotations, but. Yeah, it's a nonprofit uh, where she focuses on issues of um, feminism, femininity within the Hindu world and Hindu context. Um, she is quite prolific in her writing. I think she writes both on Medium and on uh, on Shaktitva, and she is, I think, a dual master's degree. So she's just kind of like like racking up extra degrees on the side. Um, no, no, second degree is in the works. I haven't finished it yet. <laughs> so. Um, Welcome, Neha, to the podcast, um, and I hope you've had a good week. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, the week was horrible, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were some good things. I mean, but it was a, yes. it was a little, oh, yes, yes. yeah. A monumental big thing and, and yeah. a good thing. Uh, and there was a, a very um, sort of like, you know, overall the, um, in, in the longer scheme of things, I'm not going to remember all the hate, but I'm going to remember yeah. the beautiful part. So, yes. Absolutely. Uh, in that sense, it was a beautiful week. Uh, first of all, thank you, thank you, Mugun, for uh, asking me here. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Um, and, um, you know, this opportunity is, is uh, really good. And I want to speak to your audience about so many things. So I'm quite excited to be here. Well, let's get into it then. Uh, why don't you tell us about your background? I mean, who you are, where you're from, you know, all that jazz. Yeah. So I'm originally from India. Um, and I came here around a decade ago. I came here for my master's and then stayed on uh, for a job and, and um, uh, you know, started working with the community, uh, initially like, you know, volunteering and so on and so forth. And I got, like, I, of course I was in touch with my community, but also the larger um, uh, space that I occupy. I, I like to you know, give back uh, to the way I, in any way I can. So sure. I initially I worked with um, several groups through my uh, work. So I am an engineer. So I, I part, like volunteered for girls in STEM uh, initiatives in, in different uh, groups, in different settings. I was a mentor and so on and so forth. Uh, and then I um, sort of, you know, started working with uh, temple groups um, and, and volunteered in some of those spaces. Um, around the same time, um, while I was, you know, happily working in my uh, cushy CS job, <laughs> I realized that, you know, the, as, as you, which is uh, possibly the best, biggest benefit of, of volunteering, is that you realize that you know the world is much messier than what you tend to think right. about in your ego chamber. Um, so that's how the intention of of uh, you know giving back and the real world sort of kind of uh, combined. And around the same time, I attended a lot of conferences and a lot of ideas were turning in. And um, in 2016 uh, was the peak of the Sabrimala movement back in India. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Sabrimala is a, is a temple in uh, the Indian state of Kerala. And um, in, so it's a unique temple in many ways. Uh, it, it's, um, it's a temple dedicated uh, to Swami Ayappa. And in Swami Ayappa is a, is a very um, revered, fig, uh, you know, revered um, God in southern parts of India, but he's also like some temples you can find in, in uh, northern parts of India as well. And he has like a legend associated with quite like, you know, Sri Rama or Sri Krishna, there's an entire legend associated with his life. Now right. there are several um, temples dedicated to him, 
uh, and four major temples in Kerala itself. Uh, but this one particular Sabrimala temple um, is dedicated to a specific form. So for contrast, the Ram Janmabhumi temple that we uh, saw the inauguration of this week is dedicated to Ram Lala, right? Which is uh, the baby form of Sri Rama. It is not just in any other form. It is specifically the baby form of Sri Rama. So mm -hmm. when the temple is constructed, Ram Lala will be inaugurated. And since he's a baby, you will not see the regular uh, pantheon. You will not see uh, Sri Lakshman necessarily, or you will not see uh, Mata Sita because he's not married yet. He's just born. He's like literally, like he's a toddler. Like you might have yeah. seen those uh, Janmashtami uh, uh, murtis for for uh, Laddu Gopal. We call it in North India. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so same thing is is with Sri uh, Sri Rama's baby form will be there. So similarly in Sabrimala, uh, it's not the baby form. He is a young man. In in uh, Lord Ayappa is a young man in in Sabrimala, and he's taken. And in his legend is associated a story of how he took a very 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 uh, rare and um, harsh form of brahmacharya vratam as a young man mm -hmm. and that one is called naishthik brahmacharya vratam so he in this form is is like so in this temple he is basically as a young man who has taken that pratham so when hindu temple when we talk about hindu temples this is how it's distinct from say um, you know churches or mosques because these are not congregation spaces so these are not just places where you come in and you know you uh, revel in the glory of the Lord. Uh, this is a little bit more than that because we go to a temple to get darshana, right? Satsang and bhajan you can do anywhere. There's no requirement. It's a very you know DIY sort of a thing. So you can you can organize in your in your drawing room. You can organize in any any places, and then you can have community centers to do that thing. So that's true. But temples are not that. They're, these are not prayer spaces. These are specifically dedicated homes of particular deities. And this, this understanding is natural to most practicing Hindus. Um, but it's not so much for, say, you know, people who, have, who, haven't, who don't have a very deep connection um, or, or who lost that connection uh, with, with uh, dharma for, for a long time. Or especially for outsiders, it's not easily understood. This is an important distinction. Um, so as a result, uh, what does that mean for people? When you go to a temple, you go for darshan, right? You're not going um, to, to celebrate. You're not going to congregate. You're going for a darshan. What does darshan mean? You get to see. And that in itself is a privilege, right? You get to see the, the, uh, the murti of that particular uh, bhagwan. And that particular murti is supposed to be actually, like he, it is consecrated with the life. There is a prana pratishtha done of the murti. Prana Pratishtha literally translates to establishment of prana in the in the murti itself. So now you're going to this, imagine it like this, right? You are going to the home of the gods so that you can have the privilege of seeing them. Mm -hmm. Right? And they may not feel like seeing you. Right? <laughs> and, and stuff happens, right? Like sometimes not everybody's pilgrimage completes. Um, so so sure. that that's part of Part, that's part of the belief and and that's how you're supposed to go there so now there is this entire case that was filed in supreme court of india it went through the lower courts and then it landed in supreme court where people said that i need i want the right to enter a temple 
Mm. Now that, that in itself is problematic. Like the premise itself that you want to enter somebody else's home is, is problematic. Sure. But I get, I, there is historical basis because there was all this caste discrimination that was, um, that had happened on the names of temples before. So it may be like, you know, I, we, we get the historical context of why the case was filed. So, so but, before we get into that, so I, I think it's important to point out that the people filing this were filing on behalf of women. Right. This was a particular issue about uh, about gender discrimination, as they as they yeah. frame. So I'll tell you why that happened. Yeah. That was because because he is a brahmachari, brahmachari, right? So naishti brahmachari is different from regular brahmachari. So regular brahmachari is is a celibate, and he takes a certain vow. It's his own premise, and he he you know refrains from certain um, activities and behaviors, and that's his brahmacharya vratam, which is the regular yeah. thing. Which is also another common, another very popular uh, brahmacharya Bhagwan that has taken a brahmacharya vratam is called Hanuman. Yeah. Right. So yeah. th- that's that's normal brahmacharya vratam. But in case of uh, Lord Swami Ayappa, he is naishthik brahmacharya, meaning this is even harsher. So up on odd in ordinary Hindu belief, if somebody today was to take a naishthik brahmacharya vratam, he would literally pick himself up and go hide in the mountains yeah. because the, the restrictions are so harsh. The vow is so harsh that there is no other way to possibly, you know, uh, complete it without, without um, isolating yourself in, in, in the middle of nowhere, right. which is what Swami Ayappa did. So when the temp- the Sabriwala temple, it was in the middle of nowhere, then uh, it became popular and now it became a mass stomping grounds of, of lots of devotees, but that was never the intention. Right, that right. was never that that's not how he it was initially consecrated so now in this vratam one of the requirements is that i am not going to even look at the opposite sex yeah right and and that is a very important like it's a very important vow uh, that people take is so so much so that even the devotees who are visiting swami ayappa uh, are supposed to at least supposed to like nobody checks but that you're supposed to take a 41 day vratam yourself if you're yeah, there. Yeah. And in that period, even if you're a married man, you have to practice celibacy. Yeah. And that is just one element of it, right? Because uh, refraining from any sort of sexual thoughts is the idea. It's not just the act. Yeah, I mean, I mean the vratam is, is pretty intense. They still have to sleep on the ground. They have to give up meat if they eat meat. They have to yeah. wear certain types of malas. They have to do certain japams every day. It's, it's a, a, a yeah. you know, it's a much more intense uh, and right. and the idea of uh, when we say sexual thoughts, right? This is this is an extreme practice of self control, by the way. Mm-hmm. So when we think sexual thoughts, we're not just talking about lacerating other people, right? Sure. We're going beyond that. We're saying even attraction is the beginning of all of this. And 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 the in in uh, Hindu way of thinking, attraction begins with the with the contact of the eyes. Right? Yeah, so, it, it's, the, it's the object in the sense of... Uh, the yeah, it, it is a sensory understanding and we have a very different understanding of how, you know, our bodies and our minds work in terms of attraction. So, yeah. so the Naishtik Brahmacharya says, because I'm refraining from this phase, I'm going to even, you know, I'm going to, this is an extreme practice. So I'm literally going to shut out all sorts of, um, you know, um, uh, like meaning like taking in through the senses, we're going to mm-hmm. shut all of that out. So now this was the original belief of, at which the temple was set. Now, five women, uh, primarily from North India, because from what I remember, there was not even a single South Indian person. Who had, yeah, I don't who recall had, that either. Uh, yeah, so I think... Well, actually, primarily, wasn't there that one uh, Muslim woman? 
was no she was not a she was not a person who filed she was not a petitioner oh she didn't file okay 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 and there were five women originally uh, later on some people joined but originally there were five petitioners all of them from north india who filed mm-hmm. a case in the supreme court saying that because women are not allowed to enter um it, so basically as i said like he's practicing naishtik brahmacharya vratam so the temple had instituted a rule yeah. uh, that we are not going to allow women in their sort of like you know young age uh yeah. to come in now how do you define young right well i think uh, they defined it by saying a pre a pre puberty to so even to, before so before that right they in this was not too much of a problem because it was in the no, middle of nowhere so initially yeah, yeah. nobody needed to define it but when for the number of devotees started increasing there was a huge debate uh that went on how do we even begin to define this young women uh, yeah. or group so then somebody said maybe women in their fertile period um are sort of at the peak of their you know of their sexuality and yeah. maybe that that's the age we need to say so now they were like how how do you check prepubert they how, if yeah, a yeah. random person comes in how do you check whether they are prepubescent or not so they just randomly created a like sort of it was like age group know, yeah uh, they created like a 10 to 50 age group that the people from between the ages of 10 to 50 are not allowed but any young girl younger than 10 uh, 10 or a woman older than 50 is fine Uh, yeah. because the idea is that when you look at a young girl you know the the bhavana that emerges is more of like you know she's my baby she's my daughter yeah. uh, and not um any sort of any sort of um sexual attraction uh, yeah so so that was the that was the rough idea some a lot of there was a lot of by the way lots and lots of challenges were made to this 10 to 50 rule but everybody agreed like there's no other practical way um right. of, of assure and like ensuring that you know that that wow is is um but this was done by the 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 devasam right by the by the there was one board uh, in consultation with the travancore family in consultation with the pandits yeah. uh, of who were like basically the um uh, the tantri of the of the temple and so on yeah. and so forth so it was a lot there was lots and lots of discussion and this has like history like a long history yeah. um of this discussion and then you have in 20 i think it was in it was 12 years before 2018 so around 2006 ish mm-hmm. uh they these these five north indian women filed a court case and they said that this is gender discrimination and uh then they said that basically you know um uh, this is this is sort of you know this is sexist this is misogynist that women are not being allowed into temple space right. now first of all as i as i mentioned before what there's no right to enter somebody else's home no right but because of the way laws are structured in india yeah this became a thing it became a, like it was allowed uh, to be submitted as a pil and initially again hindus sort of took it very lightly they didn't think this would this is like stupid it's, it sounded so stupid nobody really thought it would gain any momentum or go anywhere yeah so people sort of took it lightly and of course the devaswam board and the tantri were opposing it so they were the opposing party so we were like you know oh, we're fine we're in good hands and whatever in 2016 and uh, 2016 onwards the chaos went completely crazy right and and then to 2016 uh we started seeing um uh posts and placards from bollywood actors and from um or tv channel personalities saying happy to bleed um and initially we we were confused as to what does that have to do with sabrimala at all and then we realized that what they were saying was that basically they were saying that the reason women are not allowed in the temple um is because menstruation makes you impure or some some stupid argument like that right and and that's when we were like oh no 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 that's not what's happening here right like there is a 
two things that are being conflated completely, uh, completely randomly. Mm -hmm. There is menstrual restrictions which have their own space and you can debate that endlessly, but that has nothing to do with this, right? Here, right. here we're not talking about menstruation. We're talking about the women in young, like the description of young mm -hmm. women. You can challenge the age group, but you cannot challenge that it has anything to do with menstruation. And yet so, there was this, yeah. So there was this uh, conflation between these two ideas. Yeah. Two completely different practices were brought in together. And then the North Indians uh, sort of got confused with it because there is a sort of, which is a sub separate restriction that women usually do not go to temples uh, when they're menstruating. Yeah, and I, I think that's all Hindus have that at some right, level. Exactly. Yeah. So, so people thought that in this temple, this is somehow codified. Right. Right. Not knowing the entire history of it. Yeah. Um, and then that's where the madness began. And then there were articles after articles talking about how impurity is misogynistic or idea of impurity is misogynistic and, and connecting that to Sabrimala and then Brahminism and then all this madness, right? Began. Sure. And then we were like, what the hell is happening? How is, how is the, nobody getting this, right? So um, at that time, I was active on social media. Okay. And I had uh, my friend Anjali George sort of reached out to me and we were like, we need to do, we need to talk about this. So I'm guessing uh, she's my daddy though. Anjali George, yeah. that sounds very Malayali. Yeah. Um, so she got us and, and we started uh, like talking about this and she got it, uh, like she had like basically, she and uh, hundreds of Malayali women were also sort of like, you know, thinking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so initially it, the video, like she started this campaign called Ready to Wait, um, mm -hmm. in which we were, like we also sort of started counter placard campaign. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we are like nobodies. We didn't have any platforms. Like I had just a small social media account. Yeah. Um, and, and we were just starting with that. So uh, we, we had like started the placard um, campaign and we started uh, the, the, with the hashtag and slowly that movement grew. And then we realized that most of the videos were being made in like Malayalam. So mm -hmm. it wasn't getting conveyed across Kerala, but yeah. the push was basically pan-Indian. So we realized we needed to expand that. So I yeah. started like I started putting group, uh, together a group. Uh, where I, I did some like low level volunteer work where I was basically translating some of the articles um, into Hindi, into uh, uh, Gujarati and Bengali and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then um, I, I also took a placard and spoke about this. I wrote about it on my social media and so on. So like the movement basically grew. Yeah. Eventually it, it ended up uh, in the form of an organization called uh, People for Dharma in, in India. And uh, they were like, you know, organized into a group and some of the spokespersons uh, managed, like we, we got some one person literally with like, it was like really just a group of friends, like sort of, you know, trying to figure this out. Uh, right. So we were like, okay, who, who can go on TV? Um, and so we had some discussions and, and uh, Padma Pillai um, started like, you know, was basically our spokesperson and official mm. spokesperson. Uh, she's not formally associated with people for Dharma, but she started going and talking sure. and Rachel Panayar uh, was another person who started going and talking TV. Now, if you look at some of the coverage from or those debates, it was madness. It was madness because there were these bunch of people who were identifying themselves as feminists, mm -hmm. men too, right? Including Arnab Goswami. And they were yelling at Padma and, and Shilpa and whoever else was supposedly uh, defending the traditional side yeah. and, and telling them that the reason these women are arguing against uh, uh, the Supreme Court um, uh, case is because they have internalized patriarchy. Right. right? And this one, we were like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 
that kind of like that was like this was like wait the like where is this going this is out of control and so from that and then all of the international media coverage was exactly like this it was made into a women versus uh hindu tradition thing it was a women yeah. versus temple thing women versus brahmanism shit right it was it was madness yeah, yeah. so it kind of continued um with the whole thing we, that that theme continued and we sort of like you know wrangled and hands and we we thought like how is this happening so i started um um as an aside i started studying this mm. thing right because how, how can you possibly cancel an entire group of women by saying that your 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 voice is not feminism uh i right. thought the whole point was about choice right? right so so here you are you're canceling a gigantic set of women and by the way eventually that movement went to the ground after the judgment came and we had mobilization of lakhs of women on the ground against the temple entry and get this they took our pictures and i was not there physically but they took the pictures sure. of women who were against temple entry and present and captioned it in a way that it made it sound like these women were struggling to enter wow i like know, they took right? your picture like no i wasn't there i wasn't there but they took like you know pictures of i know like we we uh, were part of the i was part of the whatsapp group where like the the organizing sure. was happening and so right. we know that these are our pictures we we took those pictures we circulated those pictures right. and somehow they landed in the inboxes of journalists and they published those pictures with the caption that insinuated that these women are lining up <laughs> to enter into the temple and we were madness right and then you had you know what kind of women were appearing for that for that movement it was ordinary women right it was not celebrities yeah. it was not career feminist it was not people from the diversity department or from the gender studies department these yeah. were ordinary housewife women who stepped out of their routine to to go stand up for their god but they i'm and sure they've all internalized patriarchy i mean that's the reason, only reason why they're doing it right the queen right and then you had these you had tribal women i'm not joking like we were so moved by looking at this yeah. there were there were tribal women who were standing barefoot in the heat of kerala um like you know may yeah. uh, and and they were standing on the concrete roads barefoot and and opposing this and they were the ones who sort of created a little group and they were checking every bus <laughs> to make sure that no miscreant is trying to enter and well, here I, I we mean have that's the thing right if you think about ayappa uh, as a as a deity right he has quite a bit of both both uh vedic roots and tribal country yeah. uh, roots so there's but, so but, yeah go ahead but it's not just about ayappa right every deity is like this yeah yeah, yeah no, that's true yeah yeah like like uh, near in in what's it called in rajasthan in uh pushkar like brahma temple there like if you're if you're a married man you can't go in right yes. it, it, so that's the each temple has its own purpose its own reason its own there are goddess stella. temples where men cannot enter yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely it's an argument we we were constantly saying that every all differentiation is not yeah. discriminatory right 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 what we're saying what you're confusing is any sort of differentiation everybody must be treated the same and and everybody like we we must for instance if if your uh, you know spiritual expression um is to do vratams everybody must only be allowed to do vratams and if somebody else decides i'm what vratam is not for me that then that person is cancelled so, right so so part of this is like i think it stems from a, the very important issue in american um 
you know, civil rights movement, which is separate but equal, right? So that this, I think, like they've taken this mentality, which was very unique to the American situation where, and even not only unique to American situation, but even South Africa, they would have apartheid where you have separate water fountains and everything else for black people versus white people. And, and the fight against that was very, very necessary and needed to, to show everyone's equal across the board, especially in the American context. But the problem is when you get to the, in the world of spirituality, and you're talking about these sacred spaces, it's not an issue of separate but equal. It's an issue of distinction amongst a plethora of different, uh, like, like women. There's also like, we have to understand Eastern spirituality does not work like Abrahamic religions. No. It's not, it's not, this is a space where you come and worship the gods. Well, it is because the temples originally had that purpose, right? You'd have dances, you'd have purpose right as i said yeah. like you can you can do satsang you can do bhajan in a community center right yeah. there's no difference there's no loss of spirituality if you're doing it in uh, in outside of a temple for instance yeah, yeah. So if, if, if you're talking about the garbhagraham you're correct right so the garbhagraham that region like for example let's use the example of Srirangam, which is you know the largest temple in india so it has seven prakanams right? it has seven seven walls that lead finally into the the main temple where the where the the deity resides, the main deity, uh, which is Ranganathan. Within each of those walls of the Prakadams, you have communities living there, and each of those communities have like different purposes and different castes or, or different uh, jatis. Like there's uh, like a Shudra jati, I forget their name there. They where they make things for the Pedumal, and then you have different layers. But the, there's an entire social unit within that temple, and that's all part of the temple. I right? understand it, but but what I'm trying to say is. You don't go to a temple to do those other things. No. You go to a temple to get darshan of the presiding deity. Well, I think now we do because because of the nature of no, the, no, no. the way. No, no. no historically, historically, I mean, I'll, I'll have to push back on this just because I think historically, like until until the temple space was removed from being a social space, it was a place no, no, where no, everything. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is, look, there is a distinction between functional and non-functional requirements okay so so let me let me clarify sure. when we say temples no question they were social spaces they were yeah. civilizational spaces yeah but the purpose of mandir right and the purpose of devalaya is the alaya of the deva yeah everything else is allowed does happen you don't go even today you don't go to a temple just to get to learn hindi you also go to learn or your or your to your telugu classes or your tamil classes sure. you also, both things happen there but that's not the purpose of the temple itself so the, the, the purpose to, the temple was built was different no i agree with you there's a purpose there's a reason why the the prana or the or that issue or that devata is sitting there there's a particular what's purpose what's happening here is that we are because when we're codifying this into law yeah right, when the codification of this into law happened, but the original purpose was diluted and only the social purpose was kept alive. So then the Indian state said, because this is a public space, the yeah. temple is a public space, I'm going to take over and make sure no discrimination happens. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, so yeah, the problem with the, with the Indian side is uh, it's twofold, right? One is, first of all, the temples are run by government. Which is which is a which? No, but why? So you have to understand. I'm, no, I'm I understand. Deeper. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I'm getting deeper into that, and which is that the reason uh, the temples are being taken over by the government is because mm -hmm. the government is presenting the case that because 
temples are being identified as social spaces, right. as public spaces, it is the government's job to ensure that no discrimination happens. Sure. Right? Or sure. what we're saying is, sure, it is a social space. Yeah, yeah. For instance, if you go to Rome and you look at the, the, the primary seat of the papacy, all a tons of things happen in that campus, right? Yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. It's a gigantic campus. But yeah. that's not the point. Like, but those other things are, are sort of peripheral things. The main thing sure. is the seat of the Pope or whatever the church is. I, I'm not, I haven't been there, so I'm not sure. But, yeah. you know, you get the point. So the, the temple is built primarily to provide, irrespective of which time it is built in, it sure. is primarily the origin of the intention of the temple is for to provide a home for the deity. Yeah. And yes, then yes. it's sort of, you know, you want to celebrate through singing. So it's sort of like singing classes will start, bhajans and their rooms will open up. Then there will be dancing, which way where you want to perform for the gods. So there'll be, ten, you know, there will be that entire culture of uh, music will start and then for so on and so forth. So like additional cultural things will happen, but we should not forget that the central intention of creating the temple is the space of the gods. Sure. So because of that space, because of that reason, the Indian state is wrong in taking ownership. But no, I, I think regardless, they're wrong in taking ownership, right? It, 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 w- whether or not you want to define it as a social space or, or, or primarily as a religious space, it, they're wrong in taking it primarily because, in fact, these are, I mean, if, actually, no, if it is a religious space, then it shouldn't be the purview of the government, right? If it's a, but if you start yeah. confusing it with a social space, then it does. Well, I mean, but this is also the problem in, in the Indian world or the Hindu worldview because everything is a mix of both, right? You do have cultural but space. But the laws are colonial. No, I get it. I, I get that. So, I mean, uh, so uh, my issue is always comes down to the fact that we end up having to have, as Hindus, many times separate this sense of spirituality to make it something that's spiritual as opposed to making it something that's inherently no, this, spiritual, this, this physical. False distinction between religious yeah. and spiritual yeah, is yeah. our problem, right? But the colonial law insists on defining itself on these boundaries. And sure. so now we have Hindus have to force with themselves into Abrahamic definitions of religion and then the, or, or spirituality. And we don't know where to fall. Like, you know, yeah. if, if we say we're purely spiritual space, then you invade our spaces and you declare them as public spaces. Right. Uh, but if you say that we're purely religious, then you accuse us of being dogmatic and then you accuse us uh, of, of being, you know, uh, discriminatory. And you basically force with all the criticism you developed against Christianity and Islam and throw it at us. So sure. it's, it's a double whammy, like it's a catch-22 situation. Anyways, the point is that, you know, after all of this um, yeah. chaos, madness that ensued, and I was only like, you know, limited part, I had like a very limited part of that. My, my main part was, you know, as a very anguished person watching this disaster. <laughs> so so um, that continued. And, and at that time, the idea of, of you know, thinking of, about uh, starting a, a sort of a movement yeah. Um, which sort of allow, it does not allow us to go this far uh, yeah. against, right? So that's where Shaktitva started. And I am a, uh, like, I would like to identify myself as a Shakta. So I've been, always been like, you know, uh, attracted to the Devi and I've always been an ardent worshiper. My family has been an ardent worshiper of Devi and so on. So, which form? Um, um, it's, 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 it's North Indian. It's very heterodoxy tradition. It's not specific to a, no, no, I mean, like, do you, guys, do you have a, a Kula Devi? Uh, Devi well, Kula Devi is, um, I think Kula Devi is Bhairavi, but I, I have never lived in the villages. Uh, okay. So 
like I've been there, but I ha I don't. That's not my primary form that I worship. Uh, for me, it's Durga. Oh yeah. Uh, because, and that's partly because my father's uh, was Durga, so it kind of you know, transferred. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, but um, anyway, so but we have. So I was. I am like an you know, Shakta. So the idea of how we we look at our Bhagwans and understand the, our place in the world. Yeah. It's always been a very Hindu way of thinking about things. Sure. Like you listen to Sri Rama's story and you understand that he's Mariada Purushottam. So you learn that this is the ideal of Dharma, right? And that that sort of sets the tone. Now we will fail and we will we'll be we're miserable people, so we're not going to live up to that. Yeah. Uh, but that, that he's one of the ideals. And then Sri Krishna kind of clarifies, you know. Uh, what what does that mean? Like it's not always binary. It's not always easy. So how do you yeah. sort of like add layers to that understanding and so on? So our our spirituality is also philosophy. Yeah, um, I, and I mean that's totally true. It, I mean one of the things that that, that I mean like I'll take something diff different away from the Ramayana. Like for me, when, when I read Valmiki, I, I can read it in Sanskrit or whatever. I take that even the concept of having a, a, a perfect uh, Purushottama is impossible in the real world. Like Rama oh, yes, exactly. has its own failings, right? Which is important to have that. Understand that even God in human form has its own failings. And that's but because of the nature of the world. Failings, or do you think they are failings? No, I, th I think, I think Valmiki is trying to tell a story about that. I'm not, I'm not getting to get into that. Otherwise, we'll discuss Rama for the rest of oh, the podcast. Oh, I'm, I'm totally cool uh, with that too. <laughs> but I'll just throw one, one nugget at your listeners. And, yeah. and which is that oftentimes uh, what our understanding um, is of what we say failings comes from our projection of certain behaviors and not being able to understand with decoloniality, with empathy, with the way it was written for and with the people that it originates from. Sure. Um, but I'll we, leave it at that. We can have a follow-up podcast to discuss particularly. No, uh, I mean, we don't discuss particularities, but I think with that, I think we also have to be very cognizant of the fact that our texts are not... They're, they're not this many ways trying to show a perfection of, of anything. They're about the difficulty of existence and also how to navigate ourselves in the world of Dharma, right? Because Why we, can't they be both? Uh, well, they can be in some sense, right? Which is why we end up having like Moksha Shastra. Like, for example, the idea of having the vision of Brahman, uh, the uh, Sarvatma, all that stuff is very much about the perfection that we can see in Brahman, right? Because the world of the... That's why Brahman is called Nirmala or Amala. This is, this is the problem we have, right? Because we live in a Western space, we get into this because, and, and I know where you're coming from, and I know exactly why, why um, you're, you're trying to distinguish between those. But the idea that I'm trying to kind of throw here yeah. is that we, we trap ourselves into binaries, right? And, and, so, and those binaries are not ours. Those, those standards are not ours. So just because somebody is projecting an ideal does not also mean that it cannot does not project the difficulties of living up to those standards. No, no, no. So, so I'm not I'm not saying that. So I'm, my point is not that that the these stories are not trying to project an ideal. They are obviously, but they're also projecting the fact that to be to achieve those ideals, something must give. Like because oh, because the nature, if you look at the nature of our entire system, yajna, sacrifice, or yes. something to live something else must die. It's always the yeah. case. So even if you're going to do something good, dharmic, there's going to be some, some negative consequences. This is why it's important to think about it in the context of larger spiritual philosophy of karma and moksha, because the only way you break out of that, because it's all a cycle, 
until until you're able to break that cycle. So that's all I'm saying is like when you think about it, every action has a reaction, and yes. not and even if it's a good action, there's probably negative action somewhere, which is the entire story of both these things in many ways. Right. Um. So basically, so because um, I am a shock, then I have a certain way of thinking, and one of those was you know Devi as the epitome of of what the female expression in its purest right. form is. Um, yeah. And and again, the, you know, the the genders do not map directly to to uh, Shiva and Shakti. We all understand that that you know, creation is a mix of both, and so yeah. all, even the female form is a mix of both. But yet, at the same time, as we sort of talked about Sri Rama, uh, Shri, like the the interplay between those the divine feminine and the divine masculine mm-hmm. is is roughly what sets the tone for how genders must interplay in the Dharmic society. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of that knowledge is, you know, explored. Can you explain that a little bit? What do you mean? What do you mean by the the, the interplay between masculine and feminine within the dharmic sense has to play out in our society? I mean, how, how... so non-modern colonized society in in the Indic society, the sure, vision sure. of how genders must understand each other mm-hmm. um, is is fundamentally distinct from how we understand that in, mo- in modern times, right? Example so for instance, um, yeah. yes, for instance, you know, there's this, I read, a, I recently read an article which said that women are, so no, so violence is, is masculine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's masculine and love and forgiveness is feminine. Okay. Right. So the author was basically trying to paint a picture of what they thought was Basically, looking at attributes of people, or or you know these um, the action of violence itself, mm-hmm. and she's trying to categorize them into masculine or feminine expression. Okay. Now, this is the kind of binaries we get into, which is problematic, uh, because now, and this is why the Devi is the guiding light, because you have Durga, right, which is violence is is you know is part of her story. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, you have uh, Kali, you have Chandi, you have all of those, uh, you know, expressions of femininity, which is um, very violent in the sense, mm-hmm. uh, of, but it's it's a specific type of violence. So the and and whereas if you look at forgiveness and love, then even in the male deities, you will find a lot of forgiveness and love. Yeah. Right. So so this this sort of because the um, Western society or colonial society, however you want to call it, has come up with this idea um, of, of what is masculine and what is feminine through a very different philosophical school. They tend to create binaries where they don't exist, right? So now uh, wearing pink is, is feminine and so boys won't wear it. Um, uh, and, and wearing, um, you know, blue is, is um masculine and so girls you know uh, are appearing to be tomboyish when they're wearing certain things mm-hmm. and then this kind of like you know problematic uh, you know extensions often happen yeah but if you look at the index space right none of this confusion uh, exists none of these nobody's trying to force fit groups of people into bi- binaries right when we say shakta that doesn't mean only women worship the devi Right? Yeah. It is it, the Shakta school has, in fact, the, um, one of the some of the biggest names have always have been men. Some of the most ardent devotees have been men. Sure. Um, so, so this first of all, these uh, you know labeling and boxing of attributes of people of qualities of behaviors into masculine and feminine kind of implies that these are two poles 
right? And we're kind of either this or that. And then there's like some, it's like some sort of tug of war going on between them. Um, but where in the Hindic space, in the Hindu space or rather Eastern space, however you want to call it, uh, you have this beautiful continuum, right? And so the female expression of this, um, uh, there, there is the Ardhanarish, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same, um, the, the, it's the same Brahman and they're ex, ex, uh, sort of expressing in two different forms. Sure. So that continuum is enforced, which is why a lot of times you will see that native indigenous societies do not, um, you know, go in and, you know, uh, go crazy over some simple things like, you know, uh, the, the gender expressions or what kind of clothes you should be wearing sure. and so on and so forth. There's a, a brilliant researcher, Sumedha Varma Ojhaji, she recently wrote an article. Uh, actually, she did like a couple of years ago, she wrote a book and then from there a bunch of articles where she talks about the dressing of like the dresses in ancient India mm. were actually unisex dresses. So, and, and that connects with me because I come from the uh, Avadi speaking part of Uttar Pradesh. Um, and for us, the male Veshti is also Dhoti yeah. and the female Sari is also Dhoti. <laughs> so my grandmother used to tho call it Dhoti Dhola Omari. Yeah, yeah. Right. So basically, she is. Uh, she used to call her sari as dhoti, like the cotton sari was dhoti, and then yeah. she would actually, for some reason, she would say silk sari is sari, <laughs> <laughs> but, but cotton sari, which is which is native to us, yeah, yeah. is dhoti. So, so yeah. it was the same cloth. And Sumedha ji talks about how it was worn in different ways, sure. and sometimes it was accompanied by uh, another piece of call called angavastram. Angavastram. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that, uh, so that, uh, uh, oh, actually she describes that Uttariya and Antariya. Yeah. Um, and so those uh, two pieces of cloths were exactly what men and women wore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because the, these, these distinctions that we should dress differently, we should do this differently was not there. But that doesn't mean that we were all same, right? So yeah. people were expressing whatever their expression was, their inner expression was in however they felt comfortable. They, they were not trying to box themselves into identities, but up and by naturally women were more feminine. Uh, right. that's, but that was an expression of their nature and not because of social mores. So, right? so, so, so let me ask you this then. So uh, in the Purusha Prakriti dynamic within the Samkhya philosophy, which is underlying of all pretty much Indian philosophies, there is that distinction between masculine and feminine. You know, we have a some level of understanding what 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 they determine to be prakriti to be and what they purusha to be. I mean, the purusha is masculine, which is generally inactive. Uh, it's, it's a, a stable. It, it's not it's not dynamic. Um, it is only the experiencer, as opposed to prakriti, which is like you know dynamic and vivacious and, and like this energy of of uh, a flowing constantly, right? Yeah. Changing. And so, do you think at any point that dichotomy or binary plays in, in the way that India but i don't see it as a binary because okay. because they're not because if you think about it like when we say binary it means equal and opposite forces but these are not opposite forces these are complementary forces one cannot exist without the other right so so in in terms of pulled when we talk about binaries you know they, there could be a situation when one goes down and the other stays up well but is it the purpose of of yoga or meditation or any of that it's to separate yourself from prakriti because you are purusha. You have to sep se separate yourself from entanglement with prakriti as as understood in the the the, the three gunas, and you have to break but, out. But that's and and I'm not an expert at shakta philosophy, but 
my understanding of how to approach the Devi is, yeah. is not necessarily this way, right? Yeah. So there's this dualism uh, space where you, where you actually channel the, so they, this is how the Shakta expression, in my opinion, is different. Um, and and in, in this, so you can find this, uh, this, uh, this beauty in, in Tantra, all, yeah, in Tantra schools. Yeah, yeah. So Abhinav all of them, you will see that we, we don't position ourselves as the Purusha in the case of Shakta. Yeah. Right? In, in this tradition, we flow through Ma, right? And mm -hmm. so the, the beauty of the Prakriti is what uh, directs our expression. Sure. So if I, I often, like one time I, I um, uh, came up with this analogy and it has worked well, so I'm going to repeat that. It, think of it as like dance, right? Mm -hmm. Now, now, dancers, specifically professional dancers, or who do it like, you know, as, a, as an art form, like dancers who consider dancing as an art, mm -hmm. they will tell you that when they are in, in the middle of their expression, when they're dancing, right, it, it, is, it is almost, it, it is chaotic. Their body is jumping up and down and they're like, you know, all the hand forms and, and body is doing things about with, with itself that, you know, you wouldn't think it's possible. And right. yet at the same time, there is extreme calm. Sure. There is extreme pinpointed focus, it, right? It, it, it and, and that, yes. And that is the calmness that we explore um, and through the Shakta tradition. Yeah. Uh, so, so you don't necessarily pr try to detach from Maya necessarily like there is there is that um, element as well and i know that vedanta has as this constant um, sort of you know detachment as as the goal uh, but in in shakta tradition you sort of revel in maya yeah, and that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you would you know and, and so therefore which is why the other heterodox schools are sort of harder to understand philosophically specifically if you're coming from the orthodoxy um, because then you have Vamachara and then, then you have, you know, um, the, the other Tantra specs, uh, stuff that is, that is harder to understand. Um, but, but um, the, the idea being, the reason I'm, I'm talking about this in, in the face of feminism is because yeah. this, this native understanding of what is feminine is different mm -hmm. first, right? So it's not um, superficial things. It is not uh, in in this in this imagination. The woman is not always an ablanari. Um, you know, she's not always uh, docile and friendly, yeah. and loving, and something to be protected, and so on. That's not necessarily the thing. Those are some of the expressions, but those are not all the expressions. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same, it it basically embraces the entire uh, feminine experience. And some of those experiences, we as human beings will probably not even experience. Right. Uh, it in, in, encapsulates all of that as as what is feminine, right? And so, number one, the divine feminine is, is a celebration of that. When it comes to understanding of genders and how gender should interplay, mm -hmm. you have to look at what whether that particular type of spirituality is appealing to this group, right? So, for instance, oftentimes I've heard in the North Indian tradition, sorry, in the feminist um, circles, we've spoken about how uh, Karvachot is oppressive because yeah. oh, everything's oppressive. Everything's yeah. so because the man doesn't uh, also fast for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that's the that's the silly notion apparently. Um, and so similarly, there you have a lot. There's a lot of dissonance um, in understanding the traditions of our space because right. we're coming at 
understanding of genders from a western space yeah right so this is this is we we've looked at everything through power structures this is this is the powerful person this is not the powerful person that's not to say that there was no power differential ever uh but not everything is an expression of that right, right. especially when it comes to and because as we talked about earlier in 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 the traditions the connection between uh the religious and the spiritual and the social is is like is is very connected right it's yeah. not always and and uh, a lot of these um schools that we look at in in especially like the lenses for instance of uh, the marxist lens mm-hmm. or we uh, we talk about uh the decoloniality lenses a lot of those lenses look at only limited parts of that experience sure sure right intersectionality sort of tried to correct that but it is still very human centric it is not um you know uh, spirituality centric that's that's another element yeah, yeah. but how does that what does that mean to the ordinary woman right that's also important so if as as a modern woman uh who's living in a society that is primarily colonized but is trying to slowly recover from that space right as an as a person of indigenous origin uh who is who still holds to her heart the ancestral traditions and the ancestral wisdom of her ancestors who practices it on a daily basis mm-hmm. when she is trying to look at her social condition and she is trying to highlight she notices some problems and now she's doing the investigation of figuring out where is this coming from a lot of times the cacophony of observing it as a disconnected thing leads you to draw it you know silly conclusions right and which is like we saw which is the case we saw in sabrimala which is the case we saw with uh, you know we see with uh, rakshabandhan with karvachot and so on and or so for forth. example there's this article that came out a few years ago where this woman wrote about how rasam itself is brahminical uh yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> insanity, right? it's, it's basically insanity and yeah. so um, and and the conclusions that you're drawing i'm not the a lot of times what i see is that the original idea what was the source of investigation was not incorrect right for sure. instance a lot of people started investigating the problem of domestic violence mm-hmm. and they sort of went into this you know analysis of deeper and deeper analysis of where it's coming from what is the problem with the society why do people think that you know they it's okay to beat women and so on and so forth you started with with a point of actual problem but then because all the theories that were developed were from the western centric space you lost the plot and then you ended up concluding that you know sindhur is is patriarchy <laughs> so so the i what i wanted to distinguish with is that and, and a lot of times when we're responding to these criticisms we don't do any you know favors we actually cancel the whole thing yeah which along with it we also cancel the that we also end up finding ourselves in the space where we're denying that domestic violence even existed right right so you see the same thing you see the uh, for instance you see this investigation for uh, the, the violence against women after the nirbhaya uh, mm-hmm. uh, issue it kind of that investigation went on and then they talked about rape culture um and and as it is it was beginning to be on a slippery slope yeah. but at the time we were not discussing the post modern post colonial man's affinity to sexual violence we were projecting it on ancestral wisdom can you right? can you explain what that means so they actually there were there were a bunch of theories that basically talked about how rape culture is um amplified 
by the, the, the kind of depictions of an ideal woman uh, that, that is observed in the society. But mm -hmm. in this entire analysis, they did not consider uh, the impact of colonialism and the impact of Islamic imperialism on the Indian society. So they went, uh, they assumed an unbroken, undisturbed tradition between the modern Hindu man or, or modern Indian man and mm -hmm. the ancient Indian civilization, right? And that's a fallacy. And so now, if, and, and so in order to even understand what the ancient Indian man was talking about at that time, you need to understand that time and that philosophy and that spirituality. And that okay. itself is a slippery slope. So I often talk about, uh, so then based on this, like, you know, the argument sort of began and Chakratwa is, is encouraging um, scholarship, research, and um, as well as doing uh, on the ground activities to sort of correct that. And we're yeah. working from different, different spaces. So we're working from the research angle and obviously the, there's a lot to research here. There's a lot of new stuff that we will discover uh, because what I feel is that uh, the, the goddess tradition, it has been explored superficially um, in academia, like yeah. very superficially, mostly, mostly ethnographically. Like, most of the accounts that I've seen are very much ethnographic accounts or some sort of uh, exposition of what uh, chakra spirituality mean, mean, means. Uh, but then it stops there. There's not a lot of uh, academic um, exp you know, exploration of that philosophy itself and what that means for the modern person. Uh, but there's also the problem that there's a lot of colonial content uh, which depict, which, which did an ex entire exercise, exercise of um, demonizing a lot of parts of the heterodox chakra tradition. Um, and ironically, all of those things, those elements that they sort of pointed at, at like, look, this is bad, look, this is bad, were all subaltern expressions. Really? Um, so, yes, all of them. Like, like, like it, me, do you have a uh, couple examples, if you can? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, for instance, um, recently I read, uh, there was another expression that talks about, um, for instance, look at, like, even, why, why even go that far? Let's take an American example. Um, we've, we've heard a lot about Brahminism and Aryanism and, and mm -hmm. whatever and casteism in recent, in the last two years in America. And look at the traditions that have been attacked um, under the name of attacking Brahminism, uh, which in, in the popular space, they did a holy against Hindutva campaign. Now, yeah. arguably you could say, but it was like a, it, it was using holy against Hindutva. They were not, because if you actually read the writings, you'll realize that what they were saying was that uh, Holika was a Dalit woman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so burning her is patriarchy, is, is Brahminical patriarchy. Mm. Now, fun thing, right? If you actually actually have read anything in Hindu, you would know that Holika was the sister of Hiranyakashipu. Yeah, which and is the son of was the son of Kashyaprishi. Yeah. So by, if, if, and caste is transferred patrilineally. So even if we were assigning caste to those ancient uh, uh, creatures, uh, this would this would be a Brahmin woman, right? yeah. <laughs> first of all, who was trying to burn her nephew. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. also important to understand that, right? So now, and then, uh, so that's number one. And then you have to look at who celebrates holy in the first place. It is not the Shankaracharyas. Uh, it is no. not the the Brahminical Brahmins who you agriculturalists. It's uh, a yeah. yeah. subalter, right? Yeah. It is the Dalit communities. It is the tribal communities. It is the ordinary Hindus of North India. And I yeah. did a I did a two part series on like basically explaining 
what does holy mean um, or on this, you know, what does holy mean and whose tradition is it? So how yeah. on earth can it be classified as Brahminical patriarchy? And, but you have to understand why are they classifying it as Brahminical patriarchy? Because in this imagination, any depiction of a woman as a villain or a woman doing violence is, is bad. Yeah. Right. So Holika is a character to be preserved because she's a woman. Right. And because in this imagination, if a woman is shown as a villainess or, or like, you know, uh, as, as a villain in the character, uh, then she must have, it must have been some conspiracy by some men to paint women badly. Right. It, but it's also like this uh, rage against anything Deva, any Deva, any, any no, deity. That's, that's I'm, I'm just taking them at face value, right? I'm not, I'm not sort of doing uh, underhand reading. I'm just, I'm just. As no, 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 no. I, I know what you're saying, but I'm also saying in the same sense, the reason oh, that Hina Kashipu is. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Like the reason Hina Kashipu is seen as being like the Adalit or being as whatever is because he's in opposition to Vishnu and the Devas who are the white Aryan invading kind of people, right? That's but how they're that's viewed. the fun part, right? Yeah. Number one. Uh, uh, the form of Vishnu in against Hiranyakashipu um, is uh, half Narasimha. man. <laughs> so right. he has no race, no. no discernible race that we can understand. His ex he is not described as fair or white or whatever. Oh. He's he's described as a lion man, right? Like he's, yeah. he's literally described as a shining, man. but yes. And by the way, uh, Hiranyakashipu in this imagination would because he is the son of Hiranyakashipu, Ahikashap Vishyan and uh, uh, Diti, he would be the fairer guy. Yeah. Right? Which is well, the it's same in his name. Thing. It's in his name. Hiranya is golden. Exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> so then he is the fairer guy and there is this half man, half lion attacking him and apparently you're, you're trying to put this into racial binaries. Yeah. Uh, then there's the same problem that, and another, oh, by the way, another very, very popular and in Ramana, yeah. Uh, no, no, not Ravana. Not forget Ravana. There's a recent one which started in JNU uh, oh. communist circles and now it has come to America, which is that uh, Mahisha Sur um, is a is a um, is Dalit a Dalit Bajan. man. Yes. Yeah. And so now, when they were, they said that there are Adivasi communities uh, who celebrate Mahisha Sur as their ancestor. Hmm. First of all, we did some investigation, and we, there is one community of Asura people. Uh, who that that they're sort of weaponizing, and that's an entirely different story of who like the human element of it is is a different thing. But just understand this. So then, because they said uh, Dalit, uh, sorry, this uh, Mahisha Suru is a is a Dalit uh, guy, and so they started abusing Durga. Durga is is Brahminical patriarchy uh, because she is a fair Aryan woman. Uh, attacking Mahishasuru. Right? What's Kali? <laughs> What's Kali then? <laughs> and apparently, and then they, uh, so this this madness, but if you look at, literally, if you take a macro view, if you don't get into each of these individual stories, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you get take a macro view, you'll notice that the traditions that are under attack are holy. Rakshabandhan right? very, very holy is a very subaltern festival. Yeah. Rakshabandhan is a very subaltern festival. It is not. A, it is not a Brahminical whatever. There is no priest, and and, and none of these. So I, why I'm saying Brahminical is because the hallmarks of Brahminism, as they describe, yeah, is yeah. that the Brahmins sort of hoist themselves on each of these expressions, and then you. It's basically yeah. the very 
similar to how Catholics were caricatured by Protestants. That's how yeah, they yeah. describe them, right? So if you understand this, there is no priest involved in Diwali Puja, right? There is no Brahmin involved in Diwali Puja and it is celebrated by all, all uh, Varnas and all castes. And then you have uh, the celebration of holies that is being attacked. Once yeah. again, no Brahminical element involved. It's, a, it's literally a bonfire ritual, the whole Choti Diwali, and then there's a color playing element, which is the Badi Diwali, uh, Badi Holi, sorry, Choti Holi and Badi Holi. And then you have uh, Raksha Bandhan, right? Yeah. Once again, no priest required. It is literally an expression within the family. It is conducted within the family. Then you have Kamadiya Yatra, right? And Kamadiya Yatra is literally a group of subaltern people primarily uh, from lower castes, primarily agrarian groups, mm. primarily tribal groups that take the yatra from their hometowns up to the Himalayas to fetch the water of Gangotri and put it in their own ancestral village ponds. This is, the, again, if I was to actually do a sociological analysis on this, I can find parallels to this practice in every single native tradition ever. Sure. Right? Sure. So there is, so this is a very, very, very native subaltern indigenous expression. Um, by the way, the, the Shakta element here is that uh, it, the, the, uh, the Yatra begins with the um, blessings of the Kuladevi primarily, mm -hmm. and the water that is brought is from Ganga, another female uh, uh, yeah. goddess. And then it is brought back into the rivers, which is rivers and ponds, which are again, because the water, they're again considered to be female names. So yeah. if they all the div divinities that are involved in this tradition are primarily female, except for except for um, like one right. There's only one river that's male. It's like Brahmaputra. Everything else yeah. is a female. <laughs> and um, and by the and and now the expression is with Bhole Baba because yeah. it is also part of Shakta belief that you can never actually do Devi Aradhana without Bhairav, right? So yeah, you, yeah. you always have to balance that. So uh, there is this in in very 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 strong and popular. Um, celebration of Holy Baba uh, is done. Now, another fun, another fun thing. I've also read that Kali and Rudra and um, you know the the forms of Shiva that are drawn to be rustic and and with those you yeah. know, uh, uh, dreadlocks and so on and the uh, chillum smoking forms are apparently appropriation of indigenous deities. So they are admitting that the, that Shiva is an indigenous deity. Yeah, so yeah. Even if you forget Shakta for a second and you just take the standard interpretation, which is that Kamariya Yatra is a celebration of Bhole Baba, uh, then it is it is a very subaltern celebration of an indigenous deity, right? right? And so, and yet this was demonized in Indian newspapers, and I can guarantee you, the moment they can find any sort of angle to play on this, this will be in America very quickly, right? Yeah. And so they are they confused. They say that this is Hindutva expression. Uh, this is a massachusetts this is a misogynist expression uh, people were accused of assaulting women just because they were going on their yatra uh, then they uh, these journalists they go and they sort of cover uh, the, the 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 spirituality of these people and a lot of times these are rustic people so you know they're they're you know they're they're wearing their um, you know clothes and they're just sort of like smoking chillum and they don't you know uh, yeah. care about the world but they actually do not wear any slippers so they're they have blisters all over their feet. Uh, so nobody sees the beauty of, of, you know, of taking such an extreme vow uh, for your of your faith, but they're all characterized as basically a bunch of goons, sort yeah. of terrorizing the women uh, that avoid by taking this yadra. So you have to look at what are they attacking? They're not attacking yagyas. They're not attacking 
uh, any sort of Brahminical expression. They're constantly sure. attacking the subaltern while pretending to be subaltern theorists. They are attacking the subaltern expression of spirituality, which is primary. Most more often than not, it is. Uh, uh, the Shakta expression, because it's the, the primary dominant school in the heterodox tradition. And the other is Bhakti. Um, and then so, so the, and then another element here is, another example here is, uh, they say that, uh, this Pahishasuru example, right, by the mm -hmm. way, and, and this, this uh, that uh, Dashera is another one that's coming up uh, sure. recently. So Dashera is burning of Rama, uh, sorry, Ravana, Ravana, and so therefore, uh, therefore it is anti-Dalit and whatever. Yeah. Uh, what they will not tell you is a, even in the extreme hinterlands of very, very Naxalbadi area uh, in, in Chhattisgarh, uh, there, is a, uh, there, is a, there is a place for, called Dantewada, right? And the primary deity, the Kuladevi of Dantewada, Dantewada is Dantewadi Devi. And they do not, they celebrate a massive Dashehra, uh, but the celebration is of that form of the Devi who's believed to have slain Mahishasura. So she is Durga, right? They call it uh, that uh, with that name, but, and Dantewadi because she has teeth, right? Teeth, teeth. Yeah. Um, so she has, um, so she is uh, shown in a very Rodra form, like it's a yeah. very- Fierce of uh, form, yeah. Yeah, it's a very fierce uh, expression of the Devi. And uh, she's all black, and she is. They take out a massive procession um, of that Devi in in this entire um, like in in uh, on on the day of Dashera. Yeah, that is Dashera for them. Like for them, Diwali is a smaller festival, but but Dashera is like the biggest um, yeah. uh, celebration. I wrote about that like as well. So like my my Anjali George actually wrote on our blog about that that expression. And and this is the part right. So. What, what we are basically doing is, is a manifold problem. Mm -hmm. A, we are pretending that we understand the subaltern. First of all, people are taking up the, just like what they did to women, they're taking up the mantle of subaltern and sure. speaking for them, right? And yet at the same time, they are attacking the subaltern expression. What's the rationale here? The rationale here is to convince every single subaltern scholar that eventually joins the academy that his own tradition is an is an expression of colonialism, so that he would leave that expression and and be you know and, and which is which is the insidiousness of of this idea. So first, you do not actually give space to the real subaltern traditions. You do not acknowledge the yeah. important prominent role of goddess worship in those traditions. You underplay yeah. them. You do not highlight them. And then you uh, automatically every single major exp uh, expression of the subaltern spiritual identity is labeled as Brahminical uh, supremacy. And the idea is to convince the entire world uh, that all of the Hindu traditions of the subaltern is some giant conspiracy, right? Uh, it doesn't even have to make sense at this point. And so it's becoming so cacophonous uh, that I wanted to and, and the reads and, and I think the, the key to decoupling all of this and it, it's not just a, um, this is not just a matter of academic discussion right this affects people this affects lives yeah. um, uh, Yatra, like people in, in uh, the, the, the journalists were petitioning the government uh, to ban the passage of the Kavariya Yatra through cities so you basically take indigenous land develop it make roads and then you ask the native people to be banned from those places because they're inconvenient to you so there's there's an actual 
Like humans. So what do they term to be so so terrible about Kaveri Yatra that they need to ban it? I mean, what? Because it's rowdy and it's misogynistic and it it apparently harasses people and blocks traffic and so on. So how many so people participate in this? Uh, in this uh, thousands, thousands. Okay. So there's an entire there entire uh, month. Um, of where when you can, if you're in North India, you will see flurries of people dressed in saffron uh -huh. uh, walking up uh, to the to the Himalayas barefoot, and so there are giant processions. And because now you've built cities in their path, like their path is the same, but you've built cities in the middle of that. Right. So they have to walk on those highways to take those paths. Um, so now they walk barefoot on those cemented concrete places, and now they're too much of an inconvenience to the to the people. I see what you're saying. There. Okay. So there's that's number one. Yeah. In Maharashtra, uh, there was an entire campaign done by rationalists, atheists, and a lot of these uh, academic groups uh, that have organized into mm -hmm. physical ground level activism that is primarily centered at presenting a twisted narrative to the, um, to the urban government. And so in, they did an entire campaign uh, in a neo-colonizing campaign where they got the Maharashtra government to ban superstition. Now tell me this. Exactly. So you actually, I, they actually identified some practices and banned them. That includes the entire Agora practice. Really? Yes. Hey, so you cannot, can no longer be a Ghori uh, in Maharashtra. You're banned. But isn't, I mean, how, how does that, how does it even work if that's a religious tradition? How do you ban a religious tradition? Because if you're seen practicing it, somebody basically it's an open open uh, demand for harassment, right? So if yeah. you're seen practicing agora in um, in Maharashtra, random person will decide to call the police, um, and and wow. it's like you're driving. It's it's like driving while black, right? So so they'll just they'll just call you, um, and and they they'll call up the police, and the police will come up, and because it's banned, the police is going to arrest you and harass you endlessly. Wow. Um, they are similarly going after the Akhara tradition. Okay. They are going after all subaltern expressions, right? If you have to look under the hood. And so they're going similarly after each one of these and making a building a case. And the reason this is also affecting NRI people is because uh, this is this because this entire uh, moral case is always built in the West. Right? Yeah. The moral case uh, is built in the West. They get gather the momentum by writing articles and appealing to the Western academy. And then from here, they build up, they even build a bigger arsenal because they seek validation uh, from this, this Western academy. And right. so now once it's published into right journals, then they're going to throw that, those colonial, like those, those basically, this is an entirely neo-colonial exercise. When so you want to get something banned in India, you appeal to the West and then you get some white people to write about it. And then you throw those, throw those papers written by white people back at the brown people who are running our country. And then you assume that they will sort of capitulate. Yeah. Right? And if you do not capitulate, then this is not liberalism. Uh, because the argument is always appealing to the Western left. And in this entire madness, there is no space for smaller indigenous groups to exist and actually express themselves. So no real, you know, no, no Hindu women are allowed to speak their mind about their own spirituality because there are only two types, either you're the Indian feminist or you're in internalized patriarchy. Right. Uh, because you know you cannot have a, a sort of, uh, there, there are so many criticisms within the rich feminist tradition in the in Americas, right? 
So you have the transnational criticism against uh, feminist uh, feminism, universalism, universalism of feminism, and then yeah. you have the indigenous criticism of mainstream white feminism. Uh, yeah. So you have so many variations in America, but all of that is dumped into a monolith and thrown in India. And the only place where you can be a feminist um, is is to capitulate to the powers that be. Um, and and because of that, we've and and this is so exhausting yeah. <laughs> that most ordinary Hindu women don't say anything, right? So if there is an order, if they're subscribing to a magazine, let's say, and there are ten articles that sort of make sense to them, yeah. and there are five articles that don't make sense to them, they're just you know consumers. They they just consume that. Um, those those articles and those conversations and they'll be like I don't fully agree with this and they'll have their little um, you know they'll have their little um, conversations in their groups about it um, and there will be a lot of you know pushback but right. they will never organize and push back at the people writing it so the narrative makers are elite they, it's like a top down approach right so you're throwing sure. stuff at you take it or you leave it and whenever there is a pushback it is immediately Hindutva so. This um, and and they so like they, or some uh, random label will be thrown at you. Sure. Um, so the only way to be uh, recognized as a feminist activist or as a feminist social worker or or as a feminist academic or a scholar mm -hmm. is to kind of you know toe the line. Right. And and that because that uh, in India is supported by the West, the same thing is happening to Hindu Americans in America. They okay. do not find the same representation. They do not get to learn the language, they do not uh, explore uh, indigeneity, they do not explore decoloniality. They do, and because after a few generations, all you're consuming in education is the through the Western academy, even your understanding of India is, or, or our own spiritual tradition is coming by through a filtered lens of you know left and white people. Sure. Um, and so what we wanted to do was basically disrupt this, okay. right? So we do, it's a, it's in, in Shaktitva, we have built sort of like right now, the pipeline is kind of in, in the works, uh, but we've identified three areas of work. Uh, one is, of course, the research that in that means that uh, as an organization, we're going to encourage new scholars. We're going to publish, you know, articles that sort of disrupt this thinking um, that sort of, uh, you know, talk about the subaltern, present a clearer view of the subaltern, present yeah. uh, a, or a Hindu view and, and like, so like a, a more feminine view of the Hindu woman or her expression, unfiltered, um, unlabeled in that sense. Yeah. Uh, we also encourage these researchers to sort of collaborate, uh, to help each other grow. There are younger researchers, younger writers who kind of like looking into uh, some sort of mentorship. So that, that sort of space is the research space. We, we write grants uh, to sort of further that scholarship. Um, in the uh, outreach space, uh, we're reaching out to Hindu American women, as well as Indian women, in like Indian Hindu women, as well as women, like and we are not like literally filtering on on women, but it basically all women. Sure. Uh, but um, and we kind of like you know working with um, we're identifying areas of need and trying to see how we can fill those gaps. Um, so one of the um, like we've worked with refugee uh, groups, like you know, uh, Bhutanese refugees are like Bhutanese Hindu refugees is a big group in America. Um, that have come in here as refugees. And a lot of times, even after their immediate crisis of, you know, 
life and uh, bread and butter and, and house and, and uh, all that is sorted out, uh, even then there's a lot that they need, they go through. And a lot of that is about figuring out identities and identities is a very sensitive word uh, for, for refugees because that's the identity is why you are persecuted and the identity is, is what sort of shapes uh, your worldview and, and sure. it becomes very, so, so helping that group. And then there is a, a group of um, like, so we also work with uh, domestic violence victims in America amongst the um, Indian American community. Um, or people of Indian origin, you can say. Um, and then, so those are two spaces. One, another space is sort of we're exploring this entire uh, menstruation, um, the conversations around menstruation, and and you know, uh, understanding what what is going on, how it does it shape into policy, and so on and so forth. Sure. And then the um, the third idea is advocacy. So once we have learned through research and through outreach, what are the issues? Maybe hope the hope is that we can maybe translate that into actual advocacy. And that's where my second master's comes into play uh, because I'm doing a master's in uh, public policy. Um, so the idea is to sort of like, you know, be, be also aware and mindful uh, of, of the policy side of things so that sure. you can actually uh, come up with, with crude, like actual actionable work um, that, that can be uh, put, up, put forth as, uh, with the different people. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it sounds fantastic. I, I mean, I have a few more questions. I, I think like we can talk, I, I want to know, <clears throat> what are your thoughts? What are the difference between basically Indian or Hindu feminism versus Western feminism, if you can call it that, right? You know, uh, where do you find to be a disjunction if there is one? There is definitely a disjunction. Um, and that disjunction, as I briefly touched upon, is based on the way we think about the world, right? And our immediate philosophies. So Western feminism, first of all, it's not a monolith, even yeah, in the West. I, I, monolith, absolutely true. Yeah. So uh, Western feminism has a specific history. It, it traversed a specific history. Yeah, because like it's for first wave, so second wave, third wave, there's, you know, various. But even that, you have to look at where, how did it emerge, right? Where sure. did it start? It started as a, pushback against a system that was becoming inherently oppressive against yeah. women. Um, and when they started, so initially it's, it was a very human thing. It was literally like we've been treated badly, fix it, fix that. Yeah. Um, as the exploration began, uh, the, some, some brilliant scholars did like, you know, absolutely stunning work um, in understanding where was this bias against women even coming from. Sure. Right. And it kind of, it, it, that exploration is still on, of course, uh, but it, it went through exploring every single element, including religion, uh, and the dominant religion of the West at that time was Christianity. So the, the, we, they explored about how the um, way Eve, like the, first of all, the, the Christian God or the Abrahamic God is, is always a male God. Yeah. And, and um, the female, like even if there is some divinity in the saints and in the um, in, in in Mary, uh, it's sort of like they're always like you know some sort of like side uh, characters. Like the male, ex the actual God is male God, mm -hmm. and then there is the entire nightmare scenario of Eve being the source of original sin, right? So like all of humanity is suffering because of that one mistake that a woman made, sure. um, and also then the woman is made from the rib of a man, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm sure like people know that. Um, so there was this entire analysis that sort of went there. And then this, this exploration went deeper of how it has seeped into culture, into systems, into um, uh, various groups. 
And then from there, people, uh, women started thinking about how can we push back, right? Yeah. Um, so clearly you can't just say, no, this, I, this sucks, I'm gonna cancel that. Like, you can't do that. So you have to work within the system. So different strategies came up and which is where the different waves come up, right? So the first wave was we wanted financial emancipation, uh, which became like one of the biggest goals. Yeah, um, yeah. Of the first wave. And then so on. And then we realized that in a lot, a lot of learned knowledge was being transferred. Um, so for like, you know, financial emancipation does not, what does it even mean for a woman? Like, does that mean you stop doing your housework work? Yeah. Um, right. And so then, sorry, the first wave was suffrage and the second was financial emancipation and so on and so forth. And so, so that, that it took a particular flow, right? It, it took a particular path and that path is the best possible path that those women are given the circumstances could come up with. Right. Sure. So it was a movement. It was a movement of people and they were constantly trying to find ways to better themselves. Uh -huh. And they were constantly developing social like scholarship towards that. Uh, feminism in India did not have any such history. So when um, Indian feminism expression began in around the freedom movement, which is the same timeline as, as the Western one. Mm -hmm. So basically women in India looked at that. And, and at that time we were colonial uh, subjects too. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of that was that learned problems were, were there in our society as well. So suffrage movement now in 1947, we all got suffrage at the same time. Yeah. Right. So we, we didn't have, like, we didn't have to mount a different fight uh, for suffrage. Uh, then there was the talks conversation about um, how in different other spaces, women are shut out. Now in the social indigenous spaces, uh, the problems do not map to the same same parallels, right? The parallel, that's where the similarities stop, uh, especially once you kicked out the colonials. And you have to also understand, even though we were colonized, uh, the British were a very satellite government, right? Yeah. They were not, they, they were not settler colonials. They, they sort of operated as satellites. They operated through Vassal states. So yeah. the underlying culture of the land, even though there was like an entire the, the brain, like the education and, and all of that um, elements were there to justify colonialism. But at, yet at the same time, in every single social space that, that, um, that um, the, the white people had not set up those spaces that existed in, those, uh, in the society. Yeah. So a lot of those were, are still our indigenous spaces. Um, and so in that, because of that, for instance, if you look at medicine, uh, Amer like Western medicine was the allopathic medicine and it required experimenting and studying bodies yeah. and coming up with solutions for that. And in that women realized that women, female bodies were simply not being studied. Uh, and so there was this entire, um, you know, uh, feminists basically did a lot of work and a lot of brilliant work into getting yourself included so that your, and reproductive health is a relatively recent development. Yeah. But Indian women did not have that because our traditional medicine was Ayurveda. And Ayurveda always has, has always had um, the feminine component. Like in fact, you know, there's this, even to, in many ways, the understanding of a female body in Ayurveda can arguably be said to be better than the way uh, allopathic medicine understands that, right? So you had, so the, the similarities stopped. So the Indian feminist movement sort of fizzled. Right. And so then there was there was some brilliant movements, for instance, there was eco feminism of the cheap Chipko movement. Yeah. Um, and then there have been some um, 
uh, in like some very natural expressions of of uh, subaltern thought against the modern industrial state, uh, which have expressed themselves primarily through women. So those are the feminist uh, models you can think of. But but for the academics' point of view, it has failed to resonate in any significant way um, with um, Hindus. With, or with the native people of the land. Okay. So an ordinary woman and her understanding of, for an ordinary woman who's not an academic, who's not studying this or that, the idea of feminism is, is very different. Um, it, it's, a very, it's a very nebulous concept. Right? Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's the idea of, of sisterhood. Think of it like this. There was this entire wave of, you know, um, uh, financial emancipation, of course, like, you know, getting women included into working spaces. Uh, but then those spaces that we're talking about, once again, were the modern, like, were, uh, were, the, uh, um, were set up by the modern industrial uh, capitalist uh, setup, like off of the colonial times. So sure. when we were talking about factory workers and we were talking about offices, but if you look at these spaces of the workspaces of the indigenous expression, which is what farming, right? And and women are a gigantic part of farming. Uh, women are a gigantic part of, of cattle rearing. Um, so a lot of this, so this this fem the, the feminist movement in India has not sort of trickled down to the individual person's psyche as it has in America, mm -hmm. and there's good or, or in the West, and and it, it's there's good reason for that, right? There's there's there was a problem you were solving, which is why it resonated. Uh, even it, it resonates with me when I'm living in America, but yeah. it doesn't so much resonate with uh, Indians. Now, in that, that's not to say that women do not have problems yeah. in India. Uh, of course, there's rampant, you know, the, the, there's this culture of objectification. There's this culture from specifically starting from Bollywood. Uh, there's also domestic violence issues or general violence against women, which is normalized. Um, and there's also, uh, even in like verbal violence is very, very common. Uh, but at the same time, the, the academic feminist movement has sort of failed to connect with that expression of the women. Sure. And that's, and, and my thesis, my hypothesis or, or thesis here is that the reason that has happened is because feminism in India chose to be a copy of the West. It didn't tap into the local indigenous tradition. It didn't tap into that culture. It, it sort of mimicked the theories that were coming from the West because yeah. we were colonized. Um, so because of the colon colonization and, and the Anglophilia or the new colonization of the modern elites in India, uh, the, the subaltern expression, the, subal uh, the indigenous understanding of people, of how women perceive themselves in the society, all of that has sort of been rejected as not modern, not progressive, not uh, this and then now recently it is all Hindutva. Sure. So because of that, the, because you're not tapping into the psyche of how the way people think and the culture exists, um, the the sort of the feminine this it's almost like a bubble, right? So and it's, uh, yeah. I mean, couldn't you say that even within the Indian context, uh, the the Western feminism might apply? And I'm I'm just I'm just talking out loud here. I'm, I don't I'm not I don't have a position. I'm just um, that it might might apply more to maybe the upper caste than it would to like the subaltern or because is there different ways that women view themselves within each group? See, okay. If you think like so, if you look at first of all, there's this the 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 lines of rural versus urban, 
Um, the modern industrial setting versus the indigenous way of life. Then there is the caste bubbles. Mm -hmm. They're all overlapping. It's a Venn diagram. Yeah, it's sure. not a one-to-one -one mapping, right? Sure. It's not that all the upper caste live in cities and all the indigenous expressions oh, that's live true. in yeah. lower caste and so on. So most of the time, uh, the caste distinctions are harder. Um, to, like if you look at within caste, it wouldn't make sense. Because there are, there are upper castes who live in cities and there are upper castes who live in uh, villages and they're, they, because of the way of life and because of your surroundings and the way you live and the way you express your spirituality, yeah. especially North India, South India and so on and so forth. Sure. Um, there, there is a very, it would be very, like it, you would try to fit uh, a round peg into a square hole if you try to sort of say, look at them uh, through this cross section. Right. What would be a better cross section is that there is definitely commonalities between the problems that women face in the West and the problems that Indian women face in the cities, specifically the metros, right? Okay. So you have Hawaii, you have Delhi, uh, all of these, because they're very similar cities, like the structure of those cities and the way of life of those cities is very similar. Like okay. my life in New York is not very different from my life in Mumbai, for instance. Uh, so it, because of that, there is similarity. And which is why when I like work uh, with these groups uh, to to come up with solutions uh, for the women for like you know when I'm working with the social groups to come up with social work solutions, right. uh, we do we do think of them as two silos: uh, the urban silo and the rural silo, okay. and that defines even the language that we use to talk to the women, uh, because if you're using a language that is alien to them, uh, they will not respond. I could be saying the same exact thing. But if I'm saying it in a different way, um, the, the the groups will not respond, right? Okay. So to the Indian Delhi or Mumbai liberal um, liberal girl, I have to talk exactly the same way I would talk to an NRI child um, or to or, or to an American Hindu, right? right. Uh, but right. the way I talk to the rural person, if I if I literally just translated that into Hindi, the rural person would be like, "What mad woman is this?" <laughs> <laughs> So it's really, it's really silly. Because like, for instance, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Um, and I, and this happens sometimes I forget to sort yeah. of context and I'm constantly learning. So this one time uh, we were talking about the, like, what is one of the workshops that we can do, um, which where I can reuse some of the material from the, uh, like both clusters to both sure. clusters. And uh, people, we thought about financial literacy and we talked about education and we talked about several areas of growth, right? So I was talking to, to do different groups and I literally had back-to-back -back conversations. Um, so I had I worked with one social worker who primarily operates in urban areas and mm. uh, we had a conversation about urban uh, financial literacy and she was like, yeah, this is a great idea uh, because you know women don't know how to operate bank, bank accounts, they don't know where the branches are, they don't know that they can do things from their phone. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they don't even realize that they must have separate accounts until the man leaves and then he takes all the money with you. And, and it's really stupid. It gets like, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's some of the basic things we can teach them. Um, and, and because of that, that would really help. So I was like, okay, now I'm excited. I have an area of growth. Then I immediately switched calls and I started talking to the rural guy. And he's like, um, what are some of the things you want to talk about in financial literacy? Um, it's like it was a, a it was a group of people that I was talking to, so like it's a Zoom Zoom call. Sure, sure. And so and the, I said like you know we can talk about uh, money management, we can talk about budgeting, we can talk about you know many many ways of sort of uh, managing money. 
and the 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 the, work, the social worker he was like didi ji these women can teach you how to operate bank <laughs> and as they like, what do you mean and as they like, isn't there the case that they don't have bank accounts is like forget the bank accounts right these women actually come up with the most brilliant ways of managing their money and that's when i learned that there was a there was a group of, there there's there are several groups in various indian villages they have groups of women who literally pool their savings in one place because they've realized that if they don't deposit into a bank it's physically the cash is physically sitting there right yeah. and so you tend to spend it all of us do yeah. so they recognize that happens so what they did was they found they made a group uh, all of them pooled their savings yeah one of them noted it down however she wanted to note it um and and so now each of them bring their whatever savings they have and put it in one person's um uh and none of their husbands know by the way that this is happening uh <laughs> so now they collect all of these savings and then i said but it's sitting there like it's not earning interest so that's not helpful yeah. like, wait a second then how do they do it they actually have this um they, they have this a uh, monthly meeting mm. where they gather together and bring their savings so they actually set like it's like almost like a kitty party Yeah. Um, and then at the time a person one of those group can say now i need my money right yeah. and so she can take her chunk or she can borrow against the collective pool yeah. and then they would take interest on that collective pool if you're borrowing but that interest will be far lower than any other bank is offering um and so as they but what if somebody runs away with it like how do you enforce that and she's like the, the he's like the village has its own ways of finding out don't worry <laughs> well, I so, imagine the, the social network is so deep that no one's going to run. Yeah, it's a yeah. circle you cannot run away. Right. Uh and so and as they I, I could teach that to urban women. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this and so it's amazing, you know, this is the model that was so popular in villages that the government learned from it. It converted yeah. into a formal entity called self-help groups and that's like a formal entity in the government policy uh framework. uh where th- that's how those groups operate um wow. so if you and so is but as if but wait a second i've seen non-profits that actually go and teach financial literacy to urban women, or rural women yeah. so what do they do is like with uh, he, he calls me didi ji so it's like didi ji they come here they give us lecture they give us something after it we take that stuff and we go home <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a very different way of thinking right so right. in a western the way of life and the way or the assumptions that western feminism makes would work in any modern industrialized state arguably with some alterations you could you know get it to work in say delhi mumbai maybe even like tier 2 cities are yeah. where but a lot of our economy our indian economy is not uh, primarily factory based it's not industrial still it's primarily agricultural it's primarily indigenous it's primarily rural which is why gandhi ji's idea of uh, panchayati raj was just a brilliant idea uh, because it taps into the way people operate already right so it's not forcing a foreign concept on the people it's it's structure using the structures that already exist in the villages to sort of you know to work with the government and yeah. yes there are social issues in within these structures as well but those issues again have to be sorted from within that ecosystem of of life right so th- th- there is there are, first of all in uh, in for instance the the concept of 
nuclear families, right? Yeah. We talk about, we, in, in feminist circles, we talk about that, um, you know, when a woman goes to daycare is such an important part uh, of a single mother's life. Right? Yeah. So we push for policies where government pays for or makes sure that daycare is accessible, it is open, it is inclusive, it is diverse, and it is all of those things, right? Because, because for a single mother, that is your support system. In the, it's not like we don't have working mothers in rural areas in India. Sure. Uh, we do, but they, their kids are not being raised by one family. The village, right? yeah. The entire village freaking raises all the children. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if I am going to work and I'm coming back at five, the, the child will find his way into some neighborhood and, and figure out some way of sorting that. So yeah. if you were to find, create a policy uh, for the rural areas in India, daycare would be like the least important thing. <laughs> uh, right? and, and in fact, if you said, okay, maybe this one, usually it's, it happens naturally. Some women like love children. Uh, and so they will maybe like volunteer that or uh, that or one family would volunteer like why don't you send all the kids to me to my place and so it's all, almost like a daycare yeah. um, and so you could have you could say that oh why don't they charge for this right the the rural place will tell you that's it's preposterous we're not yeah. going to charge for raising our babies so what our baby is going to pay us now um, yeah. and and then you'll be like mm, that's she has a point and yeah. you could say, no, 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 I'm actually helping you. I'm fixing you or whatever. They will just see this as like some mad person trying to fix us. Right, right. And, and after 1,000 years of colonization, they know how to kind of not get fixed. <laughs> well, well, uh, well, I'm sure they have other, like instead of taking money, there's other things they get from the community. Yeah, right? which is, so which is already functional. So yeah, what's yeah. the government do about it? What's right. the policy element here, right? So, right? so you have to sort of, you have to change the way you, you think about policy when it comes to, uh, rural India, and this is the subaltern, right? And and right. I'm not saying I'm not. Uh, we, I didn't talk about caste in the uh, in the rural context. And caste is pretty brutal. Uh, yeah. Specific casteism is pretty pretty brutal in the rural areas. But the solution is once again not going to come uh, from the Western spaces where they're sort of just theorizing without looking at at what's happening. Uh, it has to come from within that circle. Another example I can give you is is how how we miss the boat between translation. Sure. Um, a lot of money uh, from the, the groups that have been sort of dedicated the money for, uh, for working in female, like for working in women empowerment sectors um, comes with a certain sort of policy direction, right? Yeah, and, caveats, and, yeah. Yeah, no, the, so, sorry, I mean like grants come with a policy direction. So okay. I as a nonprofit will decide which is the area of need and where do I want to help? Yeah. And so then if I'm extending a grant to other groups, I will say your project should fit within these parameters because this sure. is my goal. So you set the policy direction. Now, a lot of this policy direction, as I discussed, is pretty useless. Yeah, right? yeah. You want to create financial literacy um, in, in rural areas, but what does that mean for a rural group? Right? Right. It could mean completely different things. But if I create a project on that and submit this for approval for a grant, the person approving the grant wouldn't even understand that, mm -hmm. right? So that's number one. That's the that's the prob that's the gap that the scholarship is supposed to bridge, uh, or the academics is supposed to bridge, but that doesn't happen. So that's another element. One element, and the other element is sometimes um, because there's so much of labeling of internalized patriarchy and culture is bad and whatever is bad. The 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 nonprofits that are sponsoring this, or the government or non-government organizations that are sponsoring this work, 
uh, for individual groups insist that it be done um, in within certain parameters. Yeah. And those parameters have to be outside of cultural spheres. So you cannot, for what that means is you cannot use the language of religion um, in order to translate because they've decided that it's not inclusive. Right, okay, okay? I see. Yeah. Uh, so for instance, if you're saying this is Sri Rama Yojana um, of, of whatever, whatever, they will yeah. not, they will sort of like ask you to change the name because they don't want to be seen furthering religious things. Yeah. Um, now, what they don't understand, first of all, Sri Rama is not uh, one religion only problem in, in rural areas. The Kuladevi, usually Kuladevi and Kuladevata is, is uh, uh, an entity for all of the people living in yeah. that gram. Um, and another thing is, um, there is also this, the, the, basically Sri Rama is a, um, a revered figure for all of them. So it would translate culturally, but because our understanding of what culture is different, it is dif you know, is different. Right. Um, groups are forced to frame their, you know, narrative or awareness campaigns into a language that doesn't translate, doesn't connect, doesn't reflect. Um, so for instance, um, somebody was telling me uh, that they tried to name a group, name a, a policy or, so basically they had this um, incentivization program uh, where they, they, they wanted sort of like a program to be completed, you get a, you get a certificate. And then that person gets, they, is, is given a title to, to indicate that they're like, for instance, like a group captain or something. Like that. Sure, sure. Um, this organization said that, why don't we call them um, Lakshmi Bais? Right. Um, and the, there was a massive pushback. Like really? you don't, yeah, because uh, no, 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 this, this Lakshmi Bai thing is not culturally translatable and whatever. So for instance, if you wanted to say Durga, that would be absolute no. So this organization actually came up with a, a relatively more secular icon. And even that was pushback because there was pushback against that uh, within the circles, because, you know, there's this, there's dissonance, this, this, this literally leading to dissonance. Uh, and, and not enough groups are talking about all of this because there is this labeling uh, of, uh, or, or labeling or canceling of what it means to be left. So, which uh, is interesting, right? Because the way you're describing it, it seems almost as if like any of these entities that are, want to give money or want to do these social things, they want it done on the terms of Western secularism or the mentality of that entire worldview which is very difficult in the Indian context, right? Because in the Indian context, we're, we're not, we never fought against the state for religious purposes. For us, it was religion is, is part and parcel of everything we are. And, and, and so it's like when, like I would have no issue going to a place that said, you know, like, you know, Buddha Vihar or, you know, uh, uh, Jesus Vihar, whatever you want to call it, it'd be no issue, right? Like, but it, it just feels like a lot of people are looking into India and the Indian world these Western lenses which about what why the which is why the quote unquote Hindutva movement yeah. um, is is far beyond whatever BJP, VHP, RSS, or whatever random group you want to blame them, uh, because it is it is for, because of this way and because of the way the constitution is structured. For instance, right. um, I cannot register a trust. A trust is the uh, primary vehicle right. uh, for social growth in America uh, in right. India. If I want to, if I register a trust and I want ATG certification, which is the equivalent of Pfizer 1C3, okay. I need to sign an affidavit and submit it to the registrar of companies 
saying that I will not conduct any religious activity under the my trust. Wow. And that is a non-negotiable clause. Um, and what does what is religious activity anyway? So if I do a function and I light a dia, is that religious activity? I don't know. Right? Is that is that is if I chant the Sanskrit mantra uh, or if my my organization has a shloka uh, that as as the motto, is that uh, is that a religious expression? If we celebrate Devi, is it's that religious? Which is why Shaktitva has been struggling to register in India. Because yeah. I don't want to sign that affidavit because I know that it's opening me for harassment because I cannot adhere. Like it's, it's literally called Shaktitva. How am I not going to talk about the Devi? Right, right. Um, so, so this is this is a massive problem. And and this because of the way the constitution is structured, the same clauses would not apply to nonprofits that are working for minority groups because they can use the articles 25 to 30 um, uh, and, and claim minority protections. So it's literally discriminatory. And so, uh, so by that, you mean like Christians and Muslims can have a, a nonprofit there and still do religious stuff. Yes. And, and not just Christians and Muslims, even now because Rahul Gandhi uh, fawned over Jains. So now Jains also have that uh, option. I think uh, in some places, the Sikh groups are also asking for minority protection. But this is the madness that leads to Ramakrishna mission asking for minority protection, saying that they're not Hindu. Yeah. Right? So because how else do you operate in this space? It's madness, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and constantly groups have to decry uh, their, their Hindu identity in order to prove their secular credentials. So it becomes, it's not secularism. It's almost like a forced atheism. Um, on on Hindus in order yeah. to because well, because secularism here is being confused with uh, atheism right you could say what is the point of secularism here if it's an ADG certification for a charity a charity by definition is a non-government organization right so there is there's no secularism here it's a non-government it's not a government thing right but you know even to get tax rebates from the government you have to write that uh, disclaimer and a lot of that is literally you know it's a mix. It's, 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 uh, this is just like, you know, this is the written stuff. And then there's a lot of unwritten rules that are imposed by the bureaucracy um, yeah. on people because they just get super excited with this, this idea. So they, they actually, they, they go beyond what's even in the law. Yeah. So because of all of that, um, it is, it is literally, it's, it's becoming super chaotic. Um, to even operate as a nonprofit, and and a lot of the uh, Hindu nonprofits, right, yeah. or the nonprofits that don't qualify for minority protections, um, is are are sort of you know uh, become they are, are being harassed by the authorities or being harassed by like you know if you have an overzealous um, uh, IES person who doesn't like you, then you know yeah. he can use any of these clauses to harass you. Uh, or if you are liked by uh, by the authorities, then you can get away with a lot of things that are that you signed the affidavit, but you can still do whatever activities that you want. Um, and and this the a lot of this is literally vestiges of the colonial rule. Right. Um, but India is like a whole different beast, uh, which is also why um, the theories that are emerging in Western academia, um, of even in the indigenous space. Uh, yeah. They're working with groups that are disenfranchised in the state they're in, right? So they're working with Native American groups. Um, so Native American groups have limited sovereignty. 
um, and because of that, their their you know their struggles are with um, the the um, the problems that they have in their own society, but also with you know colonialism and the colonial state in general. Um, and all of this, which is why like it's very hard to you know basically copy paste um, anything that's emerging yeah. from the Western academy onto the Indian space. So yes, in, in theory, you know the idea ideas that are emerging under feminism from the West can be applied very, very superficially, you know, to, to sort of drive our processes the way we right. think. But when it literally comes down to the trenches, um, it's, it's very hard to take the solutions and work with them. Right? Even, the, even the models that we have here uh, for community education is, is sort of like, it's, it's almost, it's funny, right? I'll give you an example of menstruation. And we were discussing this the other day. Uh -huh. uh, one of the prominent policy directions um, for menstruation uh, from um, the Western spaces, especially when they're working with third world countries, is to uh, talk about menstrual hygiene and using talking about menstrual hygiene, they will, uh, talk about the need for modern menstrual, you know, sanitary, sanitary pads and, and so on, like the, the cleaner alternatives to manage periods. Um, it's a very noble thought in general. Um, now, basically what that means is that various policies are basically distributing pads in India, right, to the rural groups. Uh, the rural groups right now use cloth mostly. Um, and so now there's this, the, so they're basically distributing pads. Number one, uh, there's been a lot of criticisms written by several um, social workers uh, where they said that women are not sort of, you know, accepting pads and they're not sort of adopting pads. They, they, they accept it, they use it for as long as that free part lasts, but they don't understand the point of paying for it when they can, right, right when they use it for free. Um, and then, then there's this a funny, like, I sit in America and I'm just so amused constantly. And then on, on in America, they're realizing that these pads are actually very wasteful and they create a lot of garbage uh, and, and disposal is a major problem. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're literally shipping all the garbage to third world countries again, uh, which includes a lot of these pads. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so you're shipping garbage producing things and also garbage uh, to third world countries. Uh, and guess who is to manage that garbage? Uh, the indigenous people and they don't, you know, they're not very big fans of, of garbage that doesn't decompose. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two, then there is the, then, and on top of, to make this matter even more funnier, in America, now I'm seeing a resurgence of uh, cloth pads. <laughs> so now you're going, you're actually taking our knowledge and bringing it back to India. But when it comes to policy, you're actually forcing uh, your, you know, previous knowledge to us. Because yeah. it's basically, it's, it's the way they think about India is that it is, it is America's of 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's they, they think of like the progress as a linear chronological, uh, you know, transition. So yeah, yeah. Walk the path, and so they the when they envision where America is, America is here. America is here, so India is here. So yeah. it must. So whatever we did here, we are just going to throw it at India, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so that's how they think of the policy model, and so we were just going to throw all this stuff, but. It, but in because we think you know we we are an indigenous culture we have our own ways right. and in many ways we didn't fully industrialize 
uh, we did not actually get through the entire cycle. We, we skipped a lot of it. Yeah, uh, we jumped jump forward. Right. And so you're, what you're telling me is that I am going to use cloth pads, but you're still going to stop using cloth pads. And, and I'm going to send you my old stupid pads, which are very uncomfortable, and you must use those, right? So now pads in general is very uncomfortable, even for me. Sure. Pads. Tampons is not a thing in India. No, it's uh, not. So, so primarily it's, it's like this pads conversation. And in, in the middle of that heat, uh, pads are nightmare. Right, cloth usually is old saris uh, recycled as, as you know, um, uh, as as like you know, a square piece of cloth that is folded and used. It yes, it doesn't last very long. It had, needs to be frequently changed and washed and whatever, and that that is in it. And sanitation in general or clean water is general is sometimes a problem in some areas. Oh yeah, so definitely. Those those things are there, but in the idea of cloth pads is something you've adopted, right? But we don't see that transition in policy very quickly. Uh, now, there are some groups that are actually distributing sustainable cloth pads, but then the women are looking at like, uh, that's what we're using. <laughs> so what's the difference between this and that? And then you, you're struggling to explain what that difference is. Right, right. Um, and so th this is why I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of things that are getting lost in translation. Mm. And based on my Readings. This is not just an India to America problem. This is also happening in Africa. This is also happening in sure. a lot of developing countries uh, where the solutions are being created in bubbles. And because our academy is mostly, the academy of those countries is mostly composed of, you know, Anglophilic colonized elites, they don't do the translation that should have happened. Sure, uh, sure, sure. I can see that. Bring in that that new fresh breath of perspective. I mean, obviously in this, in this minstrel uh, issue, it's also a lot of corporation money being influenced about trying to, trying to, it's, it's, it, it's a really, it, it, I mean, it, in many ways, I think your earlier analogy of a, you know, a square peg in a circle, you yeah. know, makes sense. It's exactly what's going on here. Right. Yeah. Like, it, it, I mean, there was that movie, what that movie Padman that came out that was uh all about the pads, and um, I mean, I, I enjoyed the movie, but I, I, I again, I'm not a woman. I, I've never lived in India with like uh, women that I know that use, you know, the, the cloth. So I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what that is. So I don't know if that's a good thing in India or it's a bad thing. I don't know. I have no sense of that. Yeah. So, they, but they, I think like you know, it's not so much about good thing or bad thing. It's just a different product. Yeah. And an Indian woman is not going to immediately assume that it's a great product. Okay. Okay. Because it becomes, a, it becomes a great product if you're solving or bridge, like if you're filling a gap or, or Which, you're, you but know, the gap is already filled there for them. Right. Well, no, I'm like, but that's not the gap that needs filling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so you're filling the wrong gap. There is no gap in that space. You're supposed to fill something else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you're because you're not, you're coming from, you know, you're, it's like, you know, trying to um, sell tea to people who don't drink tea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're, you're bringing a solution uh, to a problem that's not necessarily the area of greatest need. Sure. Right? Uh, if, you can, if you want to say that no, but... And then what happens is we've decided that we're going to distribute PAD. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then we're going to find ways of justifying why we must use PAD. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about women are not free because, you know, they have to go to 
um, because they, they're, you know, a pad gives freedom because it lasts longer. So you can, you know, you can be more, you know, independent and you can go to a job and, and play football. That's how the ads are. Yeah. You uh, do yoga on the yoga mat in your Lululemon pants, you know. <laughs> but, the, but the women in India are not factory workers most of the time. Even yeah. the ones who are factory workers, they've been doing that job for a very long time. So they have come up with certain solutions. Right. Plus, um, they're, they're not, they don't have a lot of spare money to, to throw. Right. right. So they're not. Uh, so this is an additional expense that they don't know how to justify. Right. Um, and and this is the point isn't so much that could you use pads? Would it really be so bad? Right. The answer is no. It wouldn't really be so bad. But that's not the area of greatest need. Yeah. Right. There are so many other problems in the area of of uh, you know in the uh, in women's health. Why, if you could have done like you know the groundwork. Uh, to figure it out, you would have been able to uh, identify those. Right. What we're doing is we're reversing the gaze. So it's uh, we develop the solution in the West and then we try to fit it on India right. rather than looking at India and trying to identify the gaps and understand and talk to the women and understand them instead of trying to constantly fix them. Right. right. It's a very colonial gaze uh, right now that needs to be reversed. Uh, and, and one of the reasons that has happened is because peop- women who are actually uh, working with the space, they're not empowered enough to push back against the, the powers that be in the policy space. Sure. Uh, and so once again, we've come back to the same issue as Sabrimala, that it's the problem that there is no platform uh, for women who have these unique insights um, into the experience of women and into, the exp- into their own experiences and into their issues. Um, they don't have any platform to speak their truth. Well, they're, they're starting right? with you guys, right? I mean, you Which guys is- are... That's the idea, yes. And yeah. I'm, I hope that, you know, many more groups come up. Um, I'm hopeful looking at um, the African uh, uh, space, a, yeah. lot of, a lot of those indigenous groups are coming up um, that are sort of trying to speak for themselves. Yeah, uh, you, guys, you guys should think about starting a podcast of, of women by women, right? You know, talking about the issues across the board. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, it is, and right it is. now we don't have the resources or the bandwidth, but yes, that, that's one of the things that we will talk about um, because we definitely need to get the voices of the village yeah. um, to America because the, it, there's a lot of dissonance. And what happens is every time you challenge the dominant academic narrative, yeah. right, you immediately get labeled. Course, so course. there's no space to be a subaltern scholar that disagrees with this Dalit theory, right? With this periodist, uh, uh, this, this new uh, thing that is emerging. Yeah, yeah. So I have seen cases of Dalit scholars being labeled and canceled as Hindutva. Yeah, like Guru Prakash, I think he gets... Uh... Right, so Guru Prakash is there, Abhinav Prakash is there, um, yeah. and so on. So unfortunately, because you're not giving them any space, so there's only one other political space for them to align with. Yeah. Right? So you're making their choice with them. And then because you push them there, now you're asking, you're labeling them as Hindu right wing or whatever and so on. Right. And so these these platforms don't exist. Those those spaces are being um, how should I say policed, right? There there are these I, I like to call them neo colonial uh, gatekeepers. Sure. Right? And those gatekeepers are people like Arundhati Roy, 
uh, the people like you know which are very much celebrated uh, in America as the uh, ex you know true and uh, what, what did they call it true expression of um, the indigenous mind. Yeah. Except you know she does not actually reflect the majority of indigenous thought, um, right. and, and majority of Indians haven't even heard of her. She never even writes in any other language other than English. Right. Um, right. So so who are you talking to? And I, so you're talking on behalf of these other people and these other people do not resonate with you. And right. when they, some of their people try to rise up the ranks and try to speak to you, they're immediately canceled. Uh, so this, the attempt to Shaktitwa is sort of to bridge that, um, like, you know, to, to bridge that space, to bridge that gap and to do those, some of those translations. And of course we will be bullied and we will be, you know, all of those things will happen. We've kind of accepted that. Sure. Uh, but uh, but there is still a need to build those platforms and to build those spaces. And what's interesting is when we talk about the village, mm -hmm. um, or or we bring some voices from the village, or we bring some you know interesting facts from the subaltern theories, or or sub, we bring some of those voices. Uh, uh, the best reception we receive are from Hindu Americans. Yeah. who say that reading that gave them a better insight into their own culture that they didn't have that before. Yeah, I mean, which, which I, I mean, I, I liked reading quite a few of your articles on the, on check it those. It's great stuff, interesting stuff. It's, I like you have a diverse group of people writing too, which is really yes. nice. Yes. Um, yeah, so we're getting about two hours in now. I, you know, I think uh, taking a lot of your time. Um, so do you have any, any last, any last words you want to say? I'm not last words. Like it's like, <laughs> but any last things you want to say on the podcast? Um, uh, no, I think, you know, first of all, thank you. This was a very, uh, it was a fun discussion. I think yeah. we only got through one or two questions. <laughs> no, which is, which is great because you know what, I think we should have you back on and do some more because there's a lot of other topics in, related yeah. to women and Hinduism. I mean, we, we got through some major big stuff, which, which I think you did a great job of really laying out the, the, the history of why you created Shaktitva and then like the, the grounding of like the Shabrimala issue, because those are all important things. Yeah, um, so I think like the reason I, I sort of, you know, um, uh, explain through those examples is because yeah. I realized that stories and examples and, you know, uh, incidents make more of an impact. They last with people rather yeah. than these typology theories being thrown out. Absolutely. Around. It means um, stories what makes us human, right? The moment, yeah. moment we started telling stories is when we became really human beings. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, so that's the, so I think that, you know, this was great. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I was here. Um, I, you know, enjoyed the discussion and the, the, the free flow like, you know, discussion format. Yeah. Is, uh, very interesting because I, I actually struggle with question answer format. <laughs> I don't like that either. I don't like that because it's, it's, it's just so restrictive. And yeah. you know, and I like I like the the flow of prakriti, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that that is my that is my jam. Uh, but yes, no, I be um, basically like you know the last words are just that you know check out um, our social media presence. Uh, yeah. uh, we we actually wrote a Rakshabandhan article last year, and that did very well. And yeah. so this time we actually sort of compressed that into a comic strip. Yeah, I saw that. It was really nice. It was, it was really, really good. Popular, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we sort of tra translated that entire findings into a comic strip and we circulated that. That got very, very good reception. Uh, so we've, we're hoping to sort of continuing to do that. Like we want to also be that, uh, like we want to get new research, but we don't just want to throw it as, um, you know, academic stuff. We actually yeah. want to translate that into digestible nuggets um, that and, and which, which is relatable, which 
you know, talks to your experience and which is why the focus on stories and lived experiences is very heavy yeah. uh, in Prakritva. So you will see a lot of that. And if any of your listeners are interested in writing for us, um, you know, please uh, email at editor at chakritva.org. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on social, we're on um, Twitter and yeah. um, our website is there and you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Yeah, so um, I will put all your information into the show notes or on the bottom okay. of, the, of, the, of, the, of the stuff so they can access it. So Neha, thank you so much for your time. I, I, really, I really want to have you back on sometime soon to talk about uh, other things. I think there's a lot of other things. But uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank, thank you guys for listening. Yeti Vanamai